You are listening to One Nation Under Crime, a historical, chronological true crime podcast. Each week, we go through our nation's history and discuss a few cases. A few. From each year, starting in 1800, I'm Kayla. And I'm Leah. This case, let me tell you something. Tell it. I was telling Leah about this when she got here. I had a completely different case scheduled for this week. I still don't know what it is. And... So I'll say this. The original case was about Elizabeth Valkenberg, and she she was a black widow. So she killed her husbands, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, who was famously known for being hung in her rocking chair. Because that is interesting. Yeah, she was not the smallest of women. Mm-hmm. So they put her in her rocking chair up on anyways yes so while super interesting hardly any information on it so i tried to find a new case and i tried so hard and when i say it took a good while for me to find this case mm-hmm. you know that's the truth mm-hmm. And when you find out what this case is, and it is also another first for the nation, you will be appalled that it is not more known than it is. Is this so, the one that you said there's not a Wikipedia page on it? At all. And you are just amazed that it's not? At all. This was the one that I found a 503-page yes, yes. document on. But yet had a hard time finding information on it. And it is, one, I have my own theories of why it might not be well-known. Cover-ups. I think some people were ashamed of some things that happened. And I think that it was covered up for several reasons. But, I mean, I don't know what the crime is. I'm just assuming. It's it doesn't it is another case that does not have to do so much with the crime as it does the defense. Ah. So what's no sleepwalking? The, no. No sleepwalking. So this is another first for the nation. And it is honestly shocking. Oh dear. So let me let me grab yes. the arms of my chair. Do it. Our sources for this week. First, we have the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law. Honestly, super interesting website. And I know that I'm a nerd. I know I'm weird. No, that does sound very interesting. Psychiatry and the Law. Like, those are the two things. Oh, I love it. It was so... The article I used for this that was from that was so good. It is the most widely sourced article for this case. A lawyer friend that I have, um, her undergrad was in psychology, which makes sense. It does. And I, one, you know I love psychology. Like, I love it. And then, also, with having this podcast and with also just knowing what I know about the world, like, the law is fascinating yes. to me. I told I told my boyfriend the other day, I was like, hey, because my schedule has changed recently, I was like, 
I might go to bar classes, like B-A-R-R-E, like bar classes. Yeah. And he was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds really good. Like if that's something you want to do, go for it. And he goes, bless him. He's handsome. So are you going to be a lawyer? (laughs) And I was like, honey. Different kind, different kind. No. Um, different kind of bar. Cause I was like, I don't really like working out first of all. I don't, I don't like that. But, I'm allergic to it. I mean, yes. But my, my thing was, you don't go that, like you, it's very, but it's not high intensity. It is, right. you basically, it's like yoga. It's like, it is a mix between yoga, Pilates, mm-hmm. And ballet. And yeah. I was like, so it's not super fast. So I would enjoy that. But it's also like you have to hold one. Like, right. It's, it's a good core workout. It's a good, like mm-hmm. good overall body workout. You and I was, I was like, I could do that 50 minutes a week. Like 50 minutes out of my week, I could probably reasonably do that. Like I could probably commit to that. Maybe. I haven't done it yet. I haven't. It's intense. From, haven't. What, I, from what I hear, it's intense. But I mean. You always feel good after you do stuff like that. So I was like, I, it might be something I hate to try. that I can't do my yoga class anymore because I always feel good after. Yeah. And man, I wish there was a bar class between my place and yours. I don't think that there, there's not one. The closest that there is is um, Chase Lake. Um, but, and that's probably where I'm going to go. But it was, <laughs> I was just talking to him about it because I was like, hey, you know, I'm did you invite him? <laughs> no. Gosh. Well, and and again, like I don't talk too much about my personal life, but my work schedule has changed mm-hmm. drastically from what it was. And so I was like, I need to do something to be active. Like I need sure. to do something. And so I was like, I might get a gym membership. I'm not really sure what I'm gonna do, but I might do that just so that I can go and like Walk on the track. I'm not going to like do ways. That's not me. But I was like, just to get out and to Mm -hmm. go somewhere to do something like it wouldn't be bad. And so I was like, bar classes, that might be good. Yeah. God bless him. (laughs) So are you going to like be a lawyer or I was like, oh, well, that's the first thing he thought of. Oh, And I mean, I get it. And it makes sense because he has a very close family member who is an attorney. Sure. So, like, I get that and that's fine. And bar classes. I mean. I mean, really. But <laughs> it, I was laughing yeah. so hard. Um, yeah. I just. I want to do one of those classes. I've seen it, like, on TikTok where they have. It's elastic bands have you seen this yes where they come down from the ceiling and you I like know that I, would I hurt myself. like I want to do it but I oh really feel like gosh. I'd hurt myself or someone I feel like if you did it and I feel like if you did it a couple of times you would get the hang of it and you would be good with it but the getting the hang of it is what scares me I mean we would just make sure that no one was around you. right we'd be like mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's Leah's spot so and all the ones around her need to be empty. We could like put you your own spot back in the corner to where you Nobody can't hurt in the anyone, but you can't hurt anyone else. Mm. So there's that. And I wouldn't be up front so everybody couldn't watch There you me. go. That's true. So, uh, but yeah, those classes I've always seen and I'm like, hmm, that seems it's very interesting. interesting. 
But you put a lot of faith in, in that rubber band, that big old rubber band. I mean, I put a lot of faith in some jeans and some leggings occasionally, <laughs> and they still stay together. Ooh. So we talked about this earlier that, so if any, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say this. If anyone has ever fallen into the trap. <laughs> you can't fall into it. You can't fall. I can tell you that. Of thinking that the leather Spanx leggings are a good idea for you. They're not. I I will say this. We don't talk about. We don't talk about weight or body. Everybody is, everybody is a beach body. Everything, like, we totally understand that. We are that. all beautifully and wonderfully made. We understand that. I cannot stand when people comment other people on their weight. I, it is a triggering thing for me because if you want to compliment someone on something, compliment them on the fact that they're smart or they're beautiful or you're so kind and you're, like, <laughs> compliment people on the things that are constant don't compliment like it anyway. well, unless it's something you know they've been working on unless it is something you are close enough to them that you are well aware that you know hey doing x y and z has made this person happy so i'm going to compliment mm -hmm. them on what they have done like i have done to you yes leah has been working on her health over the past i'm very yes. very proud of her she Thank has done you. very very well but it it was something that you did to make yourself happy. And yes. that's something completely different. I saw something today <laughs> where someone just said to someone else, you look so skinny. And it's triggering for me because mm -hmm. that's always been, that's always the ideal for people, you know, like, oh, you look so skinny. You look mm -hmm. so this, you look so. So in saying that, like, I am aware that I, on the scale of sizes, am a smaller person as it may seem. And this is what I will say about these devil leggings. <laughs> I bought a size two sizes too big for me. Two sizes. Because I bought my original size to begin with. Could not. You could tell me million dollars get in those leggings and I would go I'm out that's what it is I am on Shark Tank I am Mark Cuban and I am telling you I'm out I cannot get into these leggings I bought two sizes too big for me two two still had a hard time Getting my, my leg, my leg. Look, I got some thighs. I don't have skinny thighs. I get that. I had a hard time getting my leg into these pants. So I am telling you, anyone even a half size of a pant size above me will die before they make it into these leggings. And they are so tight. That I could not breathe. <laughs> and that is bad when it comes. And they are $80. The one, I told you, one, we talked about this on the Patreon, one, gall in one pocket, audacity in the other, <laughs> that these pants 
are this small. I understand your Spanx, but there's also not enough Spanx in the world for anyone to fit into this. Like, if this thing snapped, World War III would commence. That is how much tension would be behind these pants. And that is what I am saying. So I understand this is a rabbit hole. I understand this is a tangent. I don't even know at this point how we got onto it because I am so worked up about these freaking Spanx leggings. All I can think of when she's telling me about this is Ross from Friends when he wears the leather pants. And I told her, I said, that is it. You have to lather yourself in Vaseline to slither your way Another callback to our Patreon that just came out. Go join it if you haven't. We talk about reptile dysfunction. dysfunction. That's all I have to say about that. And and the mummy. I mean, two things that obviously should be in. Indiana Jones. It's honestly. I mean, you need to be a Patreon now. Brownies. It was a whole ordeal. But (laughs) I am just saying, like, if I cannot... And I like I I fully admit, fully admit, <laughs> I am also a person that I get very mentally, I know it's not healthy, and I try to work myself out of it. I am a person <sighs> that I get very hung up on sizes. I, I, I understand. Even I understand. though sizes are not the same, which no, honestly should gosh, be illegal. Not. Yes. But and all pants should have pockets. It's all pants. Well, and if a 25 or a 26 or a 27 is a 25, 26, 27, 40, I don't care. In a size, it should be the same freaking size in another brand. I agree, I agree completely, so wholeheartedly. I'm just saying that do not fall into this <laughs> consumerism trap yes. of Spanx leather leggings. They will only deceive you and they will only hurt you in the long run. It is an abusive relationship that <laughs> you should not return to. And they're not even real leather. No. Which I mean, fine. Vegan leather. I sure. get it. I don't want to hurt the animals as well. However, don't do it. Um, we have made it through one source this week. Dear Jesus. Um, our second source for this week. <laughs> Sorry. This is where we're at, guys. Um, it's late. This is what happens when we record a Patreon episode before this. And it's late at night. And it's, it is it is later than what we usually record. We used to do this in the beginning. This is just our call back to the beginning. That's right. It was one year around ago that we were up at... Jesus, Jesus Christo, Mother of Mary. I saw that in my laptop screen (laughs) and it scared me. I thought someone was in my, my laptop screen on my work computer is open and Leah's phone does that flash thing on the back when it goes off. I thought someone was in my backyard. Oh my gosh, that scared me so bad. They probably heard my thoughts on the TSA and they were like, mm, she's out. Um, <laughs> gotta off her. <sighs> it's fine. So our next source, we're going to move on. A PDF excerpt from the case of William Freeman, the murderer of the Van Nest family by Blanchard Fosgate, MD of Auburn, New York. And Blanchard Fosgate will come back, and he actually does kind of become a central character in this in a way. 
Um, and then the last source is psychologytoday.com. Always a really good source. Our births in 1846, we did talk about this is the second year where we've kind of like shifted in what we do for the years. Mm -hmm. So there is one person in this year that we're going to focus on okay. after we discuss these. And given the timing of, I will say, when we are recording this, it is very timely. Okay. Our first birth in 1846, February 2nd, Francis Marion Smith was the founder of the Pacific Coast Borax Company. And he was also known as Borax Smith and the Borax King. He was an Aquarius. You know what Borax is good for? Hmm. Two things. Number one. Getting you out of Spanx leather leggings because I don't think that's a thing. One, um, it's good to get rid of bugs. Mm -hmm. if you have bugs in your house. Mm -hmm. We had a flea issue at Look. one time when I was younger. Um, and we had carpet. Mm. Worst thing for fleas. And also, it is one of the ingredients to make slime. You're hmm. welcome. Thought that was going in a totally different direction. Anywho, February 26th, William Buffalo Bill Cody was born. He was a frontiersman and a Pisces. There you go. Our deaths in 1846, first January 5th, we have Alfred Thomas Agate. He was an artist, painter, and miniaturist. So he created miniatures of little things. There is a Instagram that does mini. Uh, and again, this is our podcast. So they do miniature crime scenes. They make like little <gasps> bitty, like little itty bitty, like diorama crime scenes of like That's little. It's fun. really kind of cool. But I anyways. always think of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. No. With miniatures. Yes. <laughs> And then August 11th, this is just a cool name. John Caspar, which I like to think of Casper, Wild. He was a landscape painter and lithographer. He mm. died. But then we're going to focus in on our one person for this year. His name you might know, but you don't know him. Okay. His name. Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr. Oh, Jr. Jr. He was an Aquarius and he was born on January 27th of 1846. He was the grandson of explorer and Missouri Governor General William Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. His father, which also found it super endearing that William Clark named his son Meriwether Lewis Clark. Just knowing what we know about Meriwether's case. And if you've not listened to that episode, truly is a great mm -hmm. episode that people do not know about Meriwether's murder. And it is such an interesting case because of what we don't know, even though we know a lot about it. It's very, it's just very interesting. But his father was Major Meriwether Lewis Clark, who was the aide-de-camp, which we've talked about as like a secretary, um, and an in-law to General Stephen Watts Kearney of the Mexican-American War fame. His mother, Abigail Prather Churchill, was from one of the first families of Kentucky. The Churchills had moved to Louisville in 1787 and bought 300 acres of land in rural South 
in a rural area south of the city. When his mother died, Ludi, L-U-T-I-E, was Clark's nickname, went to live with his aunt and her sons, John and Henry Churchill. They inherited most of the original Churchill property, and they donated the land on which the on which Churchill Downs was built. Living oh. with the Churchills, Ludi developed a taste for expensive things, including horse racing. He made two trips to Europe and married twice. However, both of his wives ended up dying young. He came home from abroad in 1873 with an idea to build a racetrack in Louisville. He planned to implement bookmaking by introducing the French system of paramutal betting machines. Pretty sure that's how you say that. Don't know. The Churchill brothers were the entrepreneurs providing the financial backing, and Ludi was the acting president and on-site manager of what came to be known as the Kentucky Derby. When you said Churchill Downs, I'm I like, know, I know what this I is. I was like, I saw that, and I was like, How no timely. way, How timely. no way. So, for those of you who don't, we do record these a little advanced, but Kentucky Derby was just last weekend, like just happened and yeah. i was researching this and i was like and a long no. shot one this year yeah i was like no and who would have thought that meriwether lewis clark jr right created the kentucky derby right? it was just it's one of those things of like this is why i love doing this because it's so interesting there's to so see many things that are connected that you would never have thought would have so been many so of course when i found this guy i was like this is the person we're focusing on um, for this week. Yeah. So, so That's absolutely really cool. cool. Ludi was said to have an impulsive and touchy personality. It is reported that he threatened a prominent breeder by the name of T.G. Moore with a gun, ordering him off the premises after having knocked him down in a dispute over boarding fees. Moore actually got a gun and shot Ludi through a door and hit him in the chest. Moore turned himself into the police, but strangely enough, no charges were brought against him. Ludi lived and later rescinded his ban from the racetrack. But that wasn't the only person he threatened with a gun over perceived insults. The Churchill brothers did not appreciate the negative publicity and they left the track to their families. Ludi received some other land, but by the time John Churchill died in 1897, Ludi was demoted to a stable keeper at the track he had originally started. Oh. However, his contribution to American racing cannot be overstated. In addition to building Churchill Downs and originating the freaking Kentucky Derby. I mean, <laughs> like... Wow. Yeah, just part of the Triple Crown. He wrote, he wrote many racing rules that are actually still in force today. Wow. He worked for a uniform system of weights and pioneered the stakes system, creating the Great American Stallion Stakes, on which the present day Breeders' Cup is modeled. He also spoke out against allowing officials and reporters to bet on the races that they were reporting and officiating. Well, good for him. Unfortunately, Uh-oh. Meriwether Clark, Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr. It's such a long, like, yeah. anyways. Ludi. Uh, um, lost heavily in the stock market crash of 1893. Mm. 
He began traveling from city to city working as a stable keeper, but he was terrified of living a life of poverty. And sorry, guys, a little bit of a trigger warning. He completed suicide on April 22nd of 1899. He is buried in Cave Hill Cemetery next to his uncle, John Churchill. I just thought, one, I saw the name and I was like, obviously we have to talk about him. Then I found out what he had done and I was like, no way. That's very cool. So cool. Mary Weather Lewis Clark Jr., which now honestly makes sense of why when I was trying to look up all of the stuff on Meriwether and I kept putting Meriwether Clark instead of Meriwether Lewis makes total sense of why stuff was actually coming up there <laughs> because go. there was a Meriwether Clark and a junior. So yeah, made a lot yeah. of sense. But so we have Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr. to thank for the yes. Kentucky Derby and by extension, mint juleps. There you go. And did you see that the winner of the Kentucky Derby this year was like it was 80 to 1. Yeah. That that it would win, that they would win and um I, I read a story on it actually and the owners of the horse, I can't remember the horse's name. Oh, it's, oh I can't oh, it's something money or something I can't remember, but the owner and the jockey like n- neither one of them have ever been in like a big stakes race and Mm -hmm. they just happened to get the spot because somebody dropped out. Um, And the owner of the horse got this, this three-year-old. So this is like the last chance for them to, for the horse to be in the race anyway. Rich strike. Rich strike. Yeah. I was looking it up as you were talking. Yeah. Yeah, Rich strike. Yeah. Um, It was the last chance for him to be in the race, but Mm. the owner got the horse, um, the previous owner, like it, it, he hadn't performed well, and so mm-hmm. there's like a certain race that they can be in, and you know, you just kind of if somebody wants it, they can offer and mm-hmm. you know, get it. And the owner that bought him wasn't able to get the original one that he was there to buy, and so he just bought Rich Strike. I mean, you know, just kind of it's one of those. Okay, I'll take this that, one, yeah, and then ended up getting a last minute shot in the, you know, spot in the Kentucky Derby and then won the whole thing. So crazy. Love it. I love a story like that. Yeah, that's one of those like underdog stories that like, or under horse stories, I guess at this point, that people don't hear about. But it was just... The announcer was trying to look up this horse's (laughs) name, did not even know the horse's name as it was coming up and passing. He's like, oh! Didn't even, wasn't even on their radar. This horse is like, I'm the new sea biscuit. Just yeah. wait. He Eat took my off. dust. I did see an love article it. the other day that I did love, and it was a horse farm for the retired Kentucky Derby horses. Oh, love it. And um, retired jockeys and like people that were in a local nursing home, like not a nursing home, but just like a assisted living, mm-hmm. like not you know. A retirement community. Yes, that's about it. Yes, that's what I, the word I was looking for. I got you, girl. They took care of the Kentucky Derby oh, retired wow. horses. Awesome. And it was just the cutest story because it was like, they're all retired. Like, it was awesome. just so cute. It was such a it, such a precious story. I mean, it, it gives them meaning. Yeah. You know, it gives them, you know, something to do. It was just, it was such a cute story. But yes, so I just... 
How timely. I love that kind of story. I know. And I... And very cool that the Kentucky Derby... I know who it was started. Like, it was just insane. Like, you always wonder how things got started, but never really look into them. You're like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's cool. I wonder what happened, like, how that happened. And it just... Some of the stories just end up being so interesting, which is why I'm really glad. I will say, the next person that we take a deep dive into... We're getting into, you know me, one of my favorite um, time periods that starts to crop up around this time. And it is a movement that swept the world. It's a movement. Yes. It is not a moment. It is a movement. And we are going to cover one person that I saw, we'll put it this way. I saw what he created. And over all the people, I was like, I don't care what anybody else did this year. We're covering him. (laughs) Oh, no. She's creeping me out, man. You will be creeped out. So, uh, no, it's another <laughs> you know me wallet made out of human skin. No, it's not that bad. Well, it's not. <laughs> it's not that bad. I'll say that. I will say it's something you would not mess with. But that is all I will say about that. It has to do with bones. No, but we will get to it. It actually no, it won't be our one year because our next episode is our one year. But it'll be right after that. So. March 22nd of 1846. This is going to tell you exactly what we are covering this week. All right. William Freeman murdered John Van Nest, his wife, Sarah Van Nest, and their son, two-year-old George, as well as Sarah's mother, Phoebe Wyckoff, in Auburn, New York. This case is known as the first in the United States to use the monoton defense in a trial or the insanity defense. Uh, How is there not a Wikipedia page on this? That is very surprising. How? The first time, like, and, and we'll talk about it later, but this is the first official time in court records that the insanity defense was used. And we'll go into McNaughton and all this other stuff. So, we are going to take a deep dive into exactly what the monoton defense is. And monoton is spelled several different ways. It's spelled McNaughton. It's spelled, but most commonly, if you look it up, it's M apostrophe N-A-G-H-T-E-N. So it's monoton. It's very like that way. That's how it's actually spelled. But a lot of people will say McNaughton or something similar to, to this, but we'll talk about its origins and the rules for applying it in a trial as well. Do you know what I immediately think of? Hmm. The Muppets. <laughs> Manamanan. That's doo, true. Doo, 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 doo. I did think of that as doo, I was doo, um, doo, doo, doo. researching this. Okay. Um, Thank you. <laughs> but first, we are going to take a short stop in Auburn, New York. Auburn is located in Cayuga County, New York, at the north end of Owasco Lake one of the Finger Lakes in central New York. It was founded in 1793 during the post-revolutionary period of settlement of western New York. 
The founder of the city was John L. Hardenberg, who was a veteran of the Sullivan-Clinton campaign against the Iroquois during the American Revolution. It was originally known as Hardenberg's Corners. Not Hardenberg's Corner, Corners. In the town of Aurelius, the settlement was eventually renamed Auburn in 1805. Much easier name to say. say. That that rolls off the tongue much, much easier. And it became the county seat. It was incorporated as a village in 1815 and chartered officially as a city in 1848, which is two years after this trial. Positioning itself only a few miles away from the Erie Canal, which opened in 1825, it allowed local factories to inexpensively ship goods either north or south because of its connections. In 1871, the Southern Central Railroad completed a primary line to carry coal from Athens, Pennsylvania, through Auburn to wharves on Lake Ontario. From 1818 to 19- 1939, just a few years, Auburn was home to Auburn Theological Seminary, which was one of the preeminent theological seminaries in the United States. In 1939, facing financial difficulties as a result of the Great Depression, the seminary moved the campus to Union Theological Seminary in New York City. The only building from the Auburn Theological Seminary that stands today is Willard Memorial Chapel and the adjacent Welsh Memorial Hall on Nelson Street. This is what you will find interesting. The buildings contain the only surviving ecclesiastical installation of stained glass and an interior decoration by Lewis Comfort Tiffany. It is the only complete and unaltered Tiffany Chapel interior known to exist. Wow. And they were both declared a National Historic Landmark in 2005. That is amazing. I wonder what it, I wonder what it's worth. I don't know, but you can look at photos. It is gorgeous. Oh, I bet. Gorgeous. I bet. Like, and ugh. what is it used for now, I wonder? I mean. I believe from what I recall, one, they're both museums. You can go through them and you can see kind of the insides of them. But I also believe they're kind of used similarly along the same line. They're both still chapels. So, so I think they're, yeah, they're used. I mean, yeah. I, would, I would hope because that would they be amazing. They are gorgeous. Like, it wow. is beautiful. Um, Yes, it, 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 it's crazy. Um, in 1816, taking a complete 180, Auburn Prison, now known as the Auburn Correctional Facility, was founded as a model for the contemporary ideas for treating prisoners, which was then known as the Auburn System. <sighs> this doesn't sound good. No. Visitors were charged a fee for viewing the facility and its inmates. On August 6th of 1890, the first execution by the electric chair was carried out at Auburn Prison. Okay, just at Auburn Prison, not mm. like in I the think country. overall, this is one of the first places in 1890 that it was okay. ever implemented. Okay. 
The Auburn system was an idea that prisoners would work during the day in groups and then be kept in solitary confinement at night with enforced silence at all times. The silent system evolved during the 1820s as an alternative to a modification of the Pennsylvania system of solitary confinement, which it gradually replaced in the United States. Among notable elements of the Auburn system were striped uniforms. So that's where the striped uniforms for prisons come from. Silence and lockstep, which is... (laughs) marching in a very close single file line in such a way that the leg of each person in the line moves in the same way at the same time as the person in front of him so that their legs stay very close. So it's like almost like your legs interlock. Right. Like a like a caterpillar. Like a caterpillar, like a centipede, like yeah. like that. So that's how they were forced to walk through the building at all times. So now is is, are they supposed to be completely silent while they're working as well? It just said enforced silence at all times. Uh, which, not, uh, okay. I have my own feelings. I mean, if the silence is enforced, like, when it's lights out, yeah, I can see that. It says at all times. Yeah. Another characteristic of the Auburn system, or quote, I put this in quotes specifically. Quote, community activities. It's not the community activities that you would think. Um, During specific times during the day, the prisoners had tasks to perform, such as making nails, barrels, buttons, furniture, and other common household items, which is apparently a community activity. Um, Not what I would consider. They did it as a group. Yeah, not what I consider. John D. Cray, who served as a deputy warden at Auburn Prison, demanded the prisoners be completely silent to take away the prisoners' quote sense of self. Hmm. He believed that once this was taken away, the convicts obeyed the warden's wishes more easily. During the 1840s, the prison began to produce silk using silkworms in trees. The Auburn Correctional Facility was the first prison to profit from prison labor. And I just put, not great. Yeah. I have, I will leave it at this and I will just say this. I have a very large problem with for-profit prisons. Um, now, I, if they're self-sustaining, that's one thing. Correct. If you are self-sustaining, that is one thing. I have a problem with for-profit because I believe if you are for-profit, then your desire to, um, I don't know, let people out on probation for minor drug charges um, is probably going to be low. Because you want because you need money bring that money in. So that's just me. I also believe you know you should probably rehabilitate people instead of putting them in jail for drugs. But anyways, that's just me. Just you know, just let's let's educate. Yeah, let's help. Um, that's fine. Anyways, addiction is a disease. That's all I'm gonna leave it at. Um, yes. So this I was. Agree. Uh, it's just it's. it's Insane. The prison was known to have many sightseers in the 1800s, and the main goal of the system was to instill good work habits and ideas of industry that were supposed to be 
rehabilitative to the prisoners. Although the ideas of the Auburn system have been abandoned, the prison continues today to serve as a maximum security facility and is one of the most secure prisons in the continental United States. Since 1978, on the second Sunday of every August, Auburn has hosted the Great Race, which is a three- or four-person relay race involving running, cycling, or canoeing and kayaking. The race begins and ends in the area of Owasco Lake on the southern outskirts of Auburn. There are between 2,000 and 2,500 people participating in an average year. It is one of the largest relay races in the United States. There are several notable figures to mention from Auburn. The first, of course, being Harriet Tubman. And the second being William H. Seward, who we are going to discuss greatly today. Before we get into discussing him, I will say that in the 1850s, the Seward family opened their home as a safe house to fugitive slaves on the Underground Railroad. This is after this case, by the way. In 1859, Seward sold a plot of land to Harriet Tubman who used it to create a safe haven for her family and friends and other black Americans seeking a better life in the North. That's cool. It's incredible. When you know what happens in this case, and you also know that that's what happened after, it, it, it is very cool. And it's very sad that this is not more known. Okay. And it should be. And I'm very glad we're covering it because of that. Seward's house is now a local museum, and both it and Harriet Tubman's house are on the National Register of Historic Places. Some other notable figures from Auburn include Willard Bundy, who invented the first time clock, Birdsell Holly, the inventor of the fire hydrant. Dogs everywhere, thank him. Everywhere. John Walsh, the ever beloved host of America's Most Wanted. And this will be Leah's favorite person, Annie Edson Taylor, the first person known to survive a trip over Niagara Falls in a barrel. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I knew you'd like that. William Freeman was 23 at the time of his trial in 1846. His father was a slave who had been freed before William was born. So, shouldn't have to say this, but just for those who could be cleaning their home or halfway listening, William is black. So, just to make that abundantly clear as we get into this, to just keep that in mind, because it will heavily play into this case. Freeman was said to have become socially withdrawn around the age of 13, and it is also important to note that two of his sisters were described as mentally impaired. He was described to be about 5'7", broad-chested, and muscular. In 1840, when Freeman was 16, a horse disappeared, and immediately he was accused. Wonder why. Freeman insisted that he was innocent, and he was released. 
However, when police arrested another man for the crime, the man convinced the magistrate that Freeman was the one who had actually taken the horse. Freeman was rearrested, but he escaped from the jail for two weeks in July of 1841. During this time, the other man who was arrested made a deal with the authorities that he would actually help convict Freeman of the crime. That's despicable. Because of this, Freeman was convicted at trial and sentenced to the state prison at Auburn for five years for grand larceny, while the other man received an award for perjury, which we've discussed perjury is lying on the stand, and he received the award of a full discharge of any criminal charges. Now, I want to go ahead and put in here that there are a lot of pieces to this case and a few quotes that I will say on the tame side are extremely racist. Mm. I have cleaned them up and there are certain words that while not completely in the realm of being abhorrent, it sits on the line a little bit too close for me that I will not use. Uh-huh. Um, I'm with you. And some of the things that are said, and I'll point them out, don't worry, are so despicable and bigoted that my, I've told you this before, I think there are some things that happen or some things that just occur in this world that my mind genuinely cannot comprehend. Hmm. Like my mind, I think it is a defense mechanism of my brain that just says, nope, we reject that. Like we're not even, we can't even process that to emote on this topic. And I think this is kind of one of those things because to me, like, this is some of these things are so egregious that it doesn't make sense to me I, to say some of these things out loud. So, in saying that, while Freeman was in prison, he did not adapt well to his new surroundings and he continued to insist that he was innocent and he had nothing at all to do with the crime. In 1841, he got into an altercation with someone who was only listed in the system as a tradesman. Friedman suffered a major head injury that was said to take away a good majority of his hearing. Mm. The tradesman attempted to defend the severity of the injuries by stating, and this is the first quote in the line of quotes that I are not okay. And physically will have a hard time saying and did have a hard time researching. Just say that. A black man's hide, this is a direct quote, direct quote. A black man's hide is thicker than a white man's. And I meant to make him feel the punishment. Oh. I put people, period, are, period, garbage, period. I mean, just making sure that's abundantly clear. Wow. 
Over time, Freeman's hearing continued to get worse, and he became obsessed with proving his innocence and continually disgusted at the treatment he was receiving. Uh, you think? <sighs> I know. He finally finished his sentence in, in September of 1845. He was collected from the prison by his brother-in-law, who later described him as deranged when he picked him up. His brother-in-law said that he became obsessed with payback for his imprisonment. Dr. Blanchard Fosgate, who I mentioned at the very top, is one of our sources who I said would come back, and he'll come back at the end as well. Mm-hmm. He was the doctor for the prison, and he actually examined William Freeman before he was a re- released from prison. And Dr. Fosgate described his condition as, quote, he left prison conscious of the injustice he had suffered and had invited an idea that he was entitled to pay for his time. The sentiment cannot be eradicated from his mind, and on several occasions he applied for a warrant against those whom he supposed liable. Renumeration with him was the one idea. On March 12th of 1846, Freeman made his way towards Owasco Lake, armed with a common butcher's knife and a cane, with a blade attached to the lower end. Honestly, a little bit of a callback to our Patreon episode. I was going to say, I just thought about that. He noticed a few houses nearby, and after surveying them carefully, he selected the residents of the Van Nests. It was there that he murdered John Van Nests, his wife, Sarah, and their two-year-old son, George. He also proceeded to attack Sarah's mother, Phoebe. Phoebe was able to injure Freeman's hand during the attack, but while she had originally survived, she did later die from her injuries. Freeman made sure to enter every room in the house and to make sure that no one else remained. He then went out to the stable, took a horse, and ran away from the scene. All of this took place in a matter of five minutes to kill those three people injure the mother and leave and check the entire house to make sure no one else was there. Goodness. I. Yeah. So. Just two days after the murders, he was apprehended and identified by eyewitnesses. He was kept in the county jail where he awaited trial. The town was outraged by the senseless murders of the family. It is also important to note that the argument was likely an outrage that a prominent white family was murdered by a black man who was the son of a freed slave. I am not someone who subscribes to the white savior complex of, you know, like we, you know, we're here to whatever people may may believe. I just truly believe that uh, you have to point these things out because it's important to point them out because I'm sure that that was, um, I'm sure there were a lot of words thrown Mm -hmm. around Mm -hmm. that uh, led to the outrage of this and we will continue to see that. The trial was officially set for June 1st of 1846. This is where William H. Seward steps into the case. And we talked about him before. He sold land to Harriet Tubman and also later after this case opened his home to the Underground Railroad. Honestly, just 
didn't know him as a personal person. Just seems like a gem. Just me. Yes. But Seward practiced law in Auburn before and after his two terms as governor and before becoming secretary of state for President Abraham Lincoln. Ever heard of him? Mm, I think we do like this. Draws, draws Draws a conclusion, right? He was known to lecture against slavery, and he strongly supported Henry Clay for president. Henry Clay did end up losing to James Polk, and at that time, Seward returned to private practice in Auburn. He was a strong supporter of the idea of specialized facilities for persons with mental illnesses. And he accepted cases pro bono to help these types of defenses. Again, I think we might like him. Like him even more, yeah. There are some things that kind of allude to the fact that he could be problematic. I'm not going into those things at this moment. I'm saying, based off of what we know from this case, seems like a pretty chill dude. Because I am some people's idea. Right. Uh, right. We don't I'm, know what his idea is of places for people with, you know, correct. mental deficiencies. I am just saying. Benefit I of think, the doubt from what we know. I think if he took some brownies to a card game, things would be fine. That's all Stop I'm saying. It. Go listen to the Patreon episode. I, I mean, who knows? Just saying. One of these cases that he took pro bono was William Freeman's. Seward appeared in court and immediately entered an insanity plea and requested a trial by jury. It was later recounted the events that occurred once Seward stepped into the court. Quote, The large courtroom was packed with an immense crowd of angry people who could hardly restrain their indignation as William Freeman stood in the bar before them. The officers of the court were pallid with fear lest should be taken from them by force and hand in the streets. Do you plead guilty or not guilty? Asked the district attorney. Seward arose calmly, dignified, and impressive. If the court pleases, I enter the plea of not guilty, and that plea is founded on the insanity of the prisoner. An angry murmur ran through the courtroom mingled with threats of personal violence towards Mr. Seward. The district attorney, whose name was Lumen Sherwood, immediately opposed the insanity defense. Interesting. The judge ruled that because an insane person cannot be tried, William Freeman's condition had to be evaluated before he could proceed with the trial. But, The judge also wasn't really sure how this consultation should be done. District Attorney Sherwood said that sanity could be determined simply by an evaluation with or without the help of a doctor or even an evaluation from simply the jury. Sherwood said, based on his interactions with Freeman, he thought the defendant was not at all insane. Seward, however, disagreed, and the court suspended the trial while William Freeman remained in jail. Then on June 24th of 1846, the court agreed to determine his mental state by jury verdict. Jury selection followed, even though Seward strongly objected to the entire proceeding. The trial itself would be bifurcated. 
Do you know what that means? I do not. Good. We haven't discussed what bifurcation means previously, so this is a good time to just do a brief summation of what bifurcated means. When you hear it, you might under you you'll probably have heard what this is before, but not known what it was called. Um, simply, this means that the trial is conducted in two stages. The common division is to determine liability or guilt in the first stage and then damages or penalties in the second stage. So first, the determination has to be made as the descendant, if the defendant was presently insane. Then in the second phase, if Freeman was deemed sane, he would be tried on the facts to determine that his criminal responsibility and like what that would be. So gotcha. there's two juries. There, it's not the same jury. So the first jury has to determine, is he sane or insane? And then after, if he's sane, it goes to the second jury. And then the case actually starts to say, he is sane. So let's hear the case. Here we and go. the second jury would not be privy to the first gotcha. jury so decision. Can't, he's saying we Correct. can try him. Okay, new jury. New jury. A lot of times this happens when there is a a very polarizing case. Mm -hmm. And then a second jury is chosen for the sentencing phase. So it wouldn't be the same. So that's a bifurcated, like, case in that sense. Um, No beavers involved. No. No. I mean, a bipedal tail. Anyways, I can't get on that at the moment. I just... (laughs) First thing I thought of. The next day began the opening arguments for the defense. The defense stated that there was no motive for such a brutal murder and that insanity had to be the first consideration in this case. It was noted that Freeman's family had a history of insanity and mental instability. Go back to when I said that his sisters sisters. were both mentally incapable. And that this would imply that Freeman was also predisposed to mental illnesses as well. It was also cited that Freeman's prior conviction for a different crime had to be taken into account because during his imprisonment, he had suffered physical injuries, which included head trauma causing deafness and, quote, mental dullness. All right. District Attorney Sherwood opened for the prosecution, and he did not regard the issue of insanity as exclusively medical in nature and said that doctors should not hold the controlling opinion in such a matter. I'm I said, sorry. I said, okay, so who should? Is this just popular opinion? Because, I mean, I call people crazy. Mm, moving, on, moving on. Um, He argued that a common man with sound capability and judgment could easily determine insanity through simple physical personal observation. So a man. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, A common man. Um, I bet a mm -hmm. white man who owns land, I bet. I feel as though this is probably accurate. Um, He also said that this common man could easily do this with the same proficiency as a doctor. As, duh. Anyways, I put, this doesn't seem accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Something's not right. One of these things is not like the other. 
It is most likely the reason Sherwood was pushing so adamantly on this point is because Sherwood was looking for a death sentence. And to be able to hand down a death sentence, it was stated that there had to be some form of premeditation which would involve sanity. Sherwood put forth that Freeman had planned the assaults of the Van Ness family and that he had specific weapons to do so in a specific time that he would arrive. However, one thing that I have not mentioned yet is there wasn't really a question as to whether Freeman committed the criminal act, only whether it was proper to move forward with trying him in court. He wasn't denying it. There was never a question of if he did it. Uh, So that's very important to point out in this case. Seward was able to obtain medical expert opinion on Freeman's mental state, but the prosecution had also gathered experts for their side as well. They were to testify in both phases of the trial on competency and guilt. Interestingly enough, many of the observations about the defendant's capabilities and deficits were the same on both sides, while the interpretations were wildly different. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Dr. I believe it's Amariah Brigham. It's A-M-A-R-I-A-H, Amariah. So that's what I'm going with. He testified for the defense that he had examined Freeman several times in the weeks before the trial. Dr. Brigham noted that the defendant's limited intelligence in conjunction with the severe beating he received in the prison earlier left him deaf. The doctor went on to ask factual questions related to the court and its proceedings, but Freeman was unable to answer them. While he would respond, his answers consisted of, I don't know, or he would simply say, a horse, when referring to his previous case. It was also noted that he sometimes inappropriately laughed during the evaluation. And whether he was laughing at the proceedings or whether it was just a nervous laughter was never really ascertained in this case. Dr. Brigham asked Freeman about the charges against him to see if he understood the wrongdoing and murder. He said the defendant was unable to actually understand him despite multiple attempts of speaking to him. The doctor then asked if he understood what being sentenced to death meant or simply the meaning of being hanged, as well as whether he had been, quote, crazy in the past. Freeman replied that he went crazy in prison after being struck by a board. Dr. David Dimon was the physician brought in for the prosecution and he examined Freeman on six different occasions and concluded that he was not insane, but it was based on Dr. Dimon's definition of insane. His definition stated that there had to be, quote, some derangement of the intellectual faculties or of the passions, either general or partial. The judge then told the jury, quote, the only question for you to determine is whether he is at present insane. If insane for any cause or upon any subject, he cannot be tried on the indictment. This is where the difficulty came in for the jury because no one could actually give a firm definition on what the term of insanity meant. Yeah. 
This did not work well in favor of the defense, and the jury was in an 11 to 1 impasse in favor of insanity. The judge was obviously frustrated and restated the charge and said that the question was whether the prisoner knows right from wrong, and if he does know right from wrong, then he is considered sane. This will come back to bite him. The jury then determined that Freeman was, quote, sufficiently sane in mind and memory to distinguish between right and wrong. Seward immediately objected and the court overruled him. Freeman was considered fit. However, the events following raised questions. And it was noted, quote, after the indictment, the district attorney, in a very loud tone of voice, asked the prisoner if he demanded a trial upon the same, to which the prisoner answered no. The prisoner was asked if he had counsel, to which he replied, I don't know. The prisoner was then asked if he was able to employ counsel, to which he answered no. His honor, the circuit judge, then directed the clerk to enter the prison's plea of not guilty. So he said, no, I can't obtain counsel when his counsel is standing directly beside him. So yeah. he cannot understand what he's saying. Right. Or what's being asked of him. Nope. Like he, he doesn't know how to answer the questions because he doesn't understand exactly. the questions. Because this was a bifurcated jury, that means that in the second portion, a new jury was chosen. Prosecution of the defense attorneys gave very long opening arguments citing previous cases of insanity with wildly different standards. There were 72 witnesses for the prosecution and 36 for the defense with a total of 17 physicians. The range of expert testimony included theories of psychopathology, including genetics, child development, psychic trauma, physical injury, and phrenology. And phrenology is basically the study of the shape and size of the cranium, and it's alleged indication of character and mental ability based on the size of someone's skull. We, one of our cases we had... Yes, we talked about that yeah. because they took the skull to the Smithsonian yeah, to the, take a look at it. Yes. Um, so, yes. Of a bad, bad one. <laughs> then, of course, the question was raised that possibly the defendant was faking all of it. Because why not? Oh. The co-counsel for the defense argued for a broad definition of insanity and cited Isaac Ray's writing, which is exactly what happened in the Monoton defense in 1843. You may ask yourself, Kayla, what is the Monoton defense? I'm glad you asked. In 1843, England, a man named Daniel Monoton attempted to assassinate the British prime minister who he believed was conspiring against him. Does this sound familiar? Because this is very similar to the trial that preceded the attempted assassination of Andrew Jackson by Richard Lawrence in 1835. One of my favorite, favorite favorites. And while insanity was used as a defense at Richard Lawrence's trial, it was not used in such a way to be determined as one of the actual uses of insanity as a defense. Due to Daniel McNaughton's mental state, the court acquitted him and it established the Monoton rule or the Monoton defense. 
the House of Lords, which is the upper house of parliament in the United Kingdom, delivered the following explanation of the rule. Quote, that every man is to be presumed to be sane and that to establish a defense on the grounds of insanity, it must be clearly proved that at the time of the committing of the act, the party accused was laboring under such a deficient of reason from disease of the mind as not to know the nature and quality of the act he was doing, or if he did know it, that he did not know he was doing what was wrong. This meant the defendant is to be found not guilty of an offense if at the time it occurred, his mental disorder was so grave as to, one, interfere with his ability to know or understand the nature of his criminal behavior, and then, two, to have compromised the defense's ability to know or understand the legal or moral wrongness of his behavior. So you have to determine, one, that he's insane, and two, he didn't understand that what he was doing was wrong. That is what makes an insanity plea. The two-pronged rule that was established in England then became a legal standard for the insanity defense in the United States as well. In this case of William Freeman is the first time that this defense was actually used, which is why this is America's first monoton defense, which is insane that there is no information on this anywhere. That is very crazy. <laughs> now you see why I was like, why can't I find yeah. this? This is like history, like yeah. history making defense and I can't find it anywhere. Interesting. According to Psychology Today, conducting an insanity evaluation and then forming an opinion on a defendant's state of mind at the time of the crime is among one of the most complex tasks oh, sure. a forensic psychologist faces. Today, the monoton or insanity defense is recognized in Australia, Canada, England and Wales, Hong Kong, India, the Republic of Ireland, New Zealand, Norway, and most of the United States with the exception of Idaho, Kansas, Montana, Utah, and Vermont. While these states do disallow the insanity defense, they do allow defendants to demonstrate that they are not capable of forming intent to commit a crime as a result of a mental illness. So they can't say that they were insane. They can say that they were not capable at the time to commit a crime. Like, they didn't know that their mental state, they couldn't actually commit the crime because of their mental state. It's very confusing. I mean, didn't have time basically to go into plead it. insanity, but not plead insanity. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Back to the case. Garbage. Yes, it's it's very confusing. Kind of like underwriting. Yeah, it, it's very confusing. Like you can't say that there's not a there's not a two pronged rule in that case. You have to basically say that at the time you committed, from what I understand, what I read, from the time that you committed the crime, you could not understand that you were committing a crime. Yeah, essentially. Now that we know what all of that means, the defense was asserting that insanity arose from a diseased brain and Freeman had a delusion that the victims had to pay him for his past wrongs. 
The defense then took a direct attack at the district attorney's version of what the insanity standard was. Quote, but says the learned counsel for the prosecution, when we ask what is insanity, the law has settled that. Indeed, and how has it been settled? Why, says the district attorney, any person who knows enough to distinguish right from wrong is sane. But there are many cases, and all of these late cases upon the subject decide in the state and also in Massachusetts, which show that there is not such a law that reflects this. Boom. The defense further put forth racial prejudice and that it was a direct deviation from Christian values, stating that the prosecution was viewing Freeman as, quote, unlearned, ignorant, stupid, and a degraded, I understand this is part of a quote, I just put in parentheses, inward, but not that one. It's too close to the line for me to say. Don't feel comfortable with it. The co-counsel for the defense then turned to the jurors and reminded them that, quote, God made of one blood all the nations of the earth and then proceeded to present testimony from many witnesses who were acquainted with Freeman, specifically Freeman's obsession with payback. And one doctor said that, quote, this dissolution in my judgment is an insane delusion and the delusion of an insane mind. The prosecution, of course, called forth several doctors who stated the defendant was not insane at the time in question. Dr. Dimon, who we discussed previously, said, quote, Freeman is ignorant and depraved, yet I was unable to discover where in any of his faculties had been disrupted. I discover nothing about him indicating insanity. Another doctor called to the stand was Dr. Leander Bigelow. Interesting. There you go. And he said, quote, taking all evidence into case together, I am satisfied that he is an ignorant, dull, stupid, morose, and degraded, again, inward, but not that one, but not insane. And I just put, dude, he's standing right there. Like, he's literally in court. But also remember. I mean, I get it. The verbiage at that time describing mental deficiencies were very different. I mean, I get it, but like, now, but still, don't call him. He's standing I right know, there. I know, I know, I know. There's no excuse for that. Like, I get that that's wrong. I, I get that back then that was the terminology, and I get that. But however, like, you also have to know in saying those words, that is extremely offensive to anyone. Like you have know, to know that. So I'm we just have saying to give his professional opinion. And that's those not are the a professional, professional opinion. Those are the professional words that were used so. at the time. I don't believe it. it it's true. Mm-mm. Unfortunately, Seward appealed to the values of the jury, starting with the biblical injunction against killing and described the defendant's troubled life and his path to insanity. I mean, killing is wrong. It is. He ridiculed the first jury's inability to understand his client's deficiencies, mocking the conversation between Freeman and the prosecutor. Quote, the district attorney asked him whether he wanted a trial, and the poor fool answered no. He asked him, have you a counsel? 
know. And they went through the same mockery, and he stood before the court, silent, motionless, and bewildered. Poor guy. Seward's argument was for the jurors to set aside racial prejudice and to extend to the defendant basic Christian values. Prosecution asked the jurors to disregard the prisoner's appearance as well as the testimony of doctors. Quote, criminal irresponsibility. <laughs> Forgot about this quote. This quote will get you. Quote, criminal irresponsibility is a question of law, not medicine. Praising the evolution of law in reference to insanity from the time of Cain and Abel through the Monoton trial. He stated a standard for insanity in a criminal case was, quote, incapacity to distinguish between right and wrong in regard to the particular act committed, or an inability from disease to resist the commission of the act. He urged the jury to look past the argument that Freeman was wrongly imprisoned and entitled payback. His motive was simply malice and spite. The prosecution went on to praise Dr. Brigham's medical credentials, but then said, quote, he is as profoundly ignorant of law as he is familiar with medicine. And I just put, so then aren't all of the doctors that you called to trial also ignorant of the law? I mean, moving on. The prosecution concluded that uncontradicted facts, quote, show beyond the possibility of doubt that Freeman knew he was doing wrong and had full control over his actions. Judge Whitting asked the jury with deciding on the law applied to the murder and insanity. He recalled the dual test of knowing right from wrong from the monoton rules and having sufficient use of reason to control one's passions. A local paper recalled the tension in the community during the jury deliberations. Quote, the courthouse was surrounded by an immense multitude of excited people, ready to shout the cry, crucify him, crucify him. It is more than probable, had the jury failed to convict Freeman, the jail would have been stormed and the poor wretch hanged in the streets, and perhaps the personal safety of Mr. Seward also endangered. The jurors took hardly any time to convict Freeman. Sentencing was set for July 24th of 1846, and during it, Judge Whitting attempted to have a conversation from the bench with William Freeman. This is their conversation. Judge, you have been tried for killing Mr. Van Nest. Do you understand that? Prisoner, don't know. Judge, we are now going to sentence you. The jury say you killed him. Do you know what I mean? Prisoner. I don't know. Judge. Do you hear what I said? Do you know what I mean? You've been tried for killing him. Do you understand that? Do you know that? The jury say you're guilty that you did kill him. Do you understand that? Prisoner. I don't know. Mm. Judge. Do you know who the jury are? Those men who sit along there? Well, they say you did kill him and that now we are going to sentence you to be hanged. Do you understand that? Prisoner. Yes. Judge. Have you anything to say against it? Anything to tell me about it? Prisoner. I don't know. 
Despite the interaction, William Freeman was sentenced to death and returned to the jail. Seward immediately put forth a motion for an appeal. Attorneys Seward and Wright submitted a 27-point bill of exceptions listing errors committed during various phases of the trials. The appellate arguments were heard November of 1846. The New York Supreme Court announced a decision in January of 1847 with Justice Beardsley, cool last name, writing for the court. He began with the rule, quote, no insane person can be tried, sentenced to any punishment or punishment for any crime or offense while he continues in that state. The decision relied on the English case of the Monoton Rules, and it was noted that New York's statute did not set forth a method for determining insanity. The justice said that ordinarily there are no grounds to reverse a judgment in a preliminary trial, but he made an exception here because Judge Whitting used the single criteria of knowing right from wrong in the competency phase and the court was wrong in determining the insanity and therefore the judgment was defective. That makes me happy. Well, don't get too excited. Well, I get the judge then quoted the monoton rule and said that distinguishing right from wrong at the time of the act was the correct test for jury instruction. Quote, partial insanity is not necessarily an excuse for crime. If it were, it would afford absolute impunity to every person in an insane state. The act must be an insane act and not merely the act of the insane person. The justice concluded that it was wrong for the trial court to have restricted the defense's expert testimony in the guilt phase. The decision was to overturn William Freeman's conviction, granting him a new trial under New York's new insanity standards. But let's not get too excited. Hmm. The retrial was expected to begin in March of 1847, but Judge Whitting visited William Freeman in jail and found he was not physically fit to withstand trial, even though he still left him chained to the wall in the jail. Dr. Fosgate, who was the doctor who I cited and who also checked him out before he left the hospital, before he left, not the hospital, the jail the first time. Uh, this is the same doctor who is also evaluating him now. Dr. Fosgate reported his condition from the jail, noting that Freeman's hearing loss was nearly total at this point. Sorry, this is kind of gross. I get it, but it has to be said. He had pus coming from out of his ear and his vision was severely deteriorated by this point. The doctor also diagnosed him at this time with pulmonary tuberculosis. Mm. A phrenologist, L.N. Fowler, examined Freeman in 1847, concluding that he had imperfect brain development and an unbalanced mind. In August of 1847, William Freeman's chains were removed and he died six days later. Postmortem examinations, including two phrenological assessments, 
or supportive that William Freeman's brain pathology was completely consistent with insanity. And that is America's first monoton defense in the trial of William Freeman. That poor guy. It is really, I mean, obviously murder is bad. We've discussed this. Like that, I get that. I also, there's a lot, there's a lot I also could, this is 13 pages of notes, guys, 13. And there's so much more I could have included to go along with the case and to go along with the monotonous rules, but we just simply did not have the time to go into all I mean, of it. I, I hate that a family was killed. Yes. That is horrible. That it's, is horrible. It is abhorrent, honestly. But the treatment of this guy, he was wrongly mm-hmm. imprisoned. Allegedly. Allegedly. Oh. The first time for stealing a horse. We, he says he was wrongly imprisoned. Again, we don't know. We cannot speak to that. However, he the, the proclaims that he was innocent. With the authorities to help get him. I mean, I agree. That I'm, sounds like some dirty deeds right. to me. It does. Sounds it like does. They were as, as I have heard someone say, in cahoots. Oh not, yes, not in cahoots, but in cahoots. They definitely were. I will say that. That that. Yes, and then for someone to beat him, I that I mean. Mm. It Anyways. makes me think of Shawshank Redemption. Oh, so you know the first night that they came in, you know they were yeah. all betting mm-hmm. on who the first person would be, mm-hmm. and and then you know they find out that the guy died. It is because yeah. he was beaten so severely. And That's the what it reminds me home. of too. Yeah, it's it's super unfortunate, but the and and yes, all of this is unfortunate. Obviously, murder's bad. We've discussed this before. My shock today comes in with the fact that no one knows about this case. And this is not a widely known case. It doesn't have a freaking Wikipedia. Like, it's Wikipedia. Like, it's not, this is not Britannica. Like, this is not Merriam-Webster. This This is Wikipedia, like nowhere. And this was a case that occurred in 1846. Like I should have been able to find this immediately. And I had to dig to find this. Like that's what? And this is the first time that this was actually like used. It's just insane to me. And well, and the mistreatment of someone who can't help themselves Mm-hmm. You want to know something that'll burn me up? Mm-hmm. I, I, oh, 100%. Oh. And this was just one of those things, and it's, it's unfortunate, but this is one of those times where I'm glad we have the podcast that we have because I'm glad that yes. we can find these cases, and I'm glad that we can kind of pull these cases out of obscurity yeah, and bring them forward again to where hopefully this now becomes a larger conversation. But it makes me kind of wonder about his whole family, though, because he Mm -hmm. had two sisters. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I wonder... And no telling really how many other siblings. They just said that the two sisters... It was just noted that those two sisters had mental indeficiencies. So, I wonder, you know, what was going on there, you know? I know. I don't know. And that, yeah, I wondered that, too. Because that's that's unusual mm-hmm. to have, you know, 
more than one Mm -hmm. child that, you know, has some sort of mental issue. Mm -hmm. It makes you wonder if it was a malnourishment thing, because, you know, that can sometimes lead to... Sometimes that can sometimes lead to that, whether it be... Or if it was something that was in the um, in the environment mm-hmm. itself, if mm-hmm. it was, you know, an environmental issue, mm-hmm. or if it, you know, I... I, I don't I, understand what it could have been either. It was very weird. It was very... Yes. And could not find anything on it, which was just crazy to me. Mm-hmm. Crazy. So, and just uh, number one, no one is less than anyone. Mm -mm. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. Mm -hmm. Everybody's poop stinks. I mean, it's just that that's just a fact of life. Mm -hmm. No one is better than anyone. You may have a nicer car than somebody, but you know, at the end of the day, we're all the same on the inside. We got all the same parts on the inside. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that just. Nobody's better than anybody. Doesn't matter what color your skin is on the outside. Mm-mm. It doesn't matter where you live. Whatever you are not better than anybody. Mm-mm. How dare you? And you know what? If you're smarter than somebody, if you have the means to help somebody, do it. Mm-hmm. You know, don't just stand there and make fun of them. Don't try to scam them. Don't try to you know try to set them up for a crime that you did because they're an easy target. Mm-hmm. That's despicable. That is disgusting. And unfortunately, that's what happens today, even still. Even yeah, oh. And it's the amount of cases that I see where people are wrongfully convicted is honestly sickening. And oh, it just makes me so angry. It it is angry because the law while the law is the law, and just as there are good people and there are bad people, sure. there are good lawyers and bad lawyers, there are good police officers and bad police officers. While we greatly appreciate in the, every profession, exactly in every profession, while we greatly appreciate the sacrifice of our law enforcement, we also understand that not everyone does their job with the same pure intent as others. All first responders. Exactly. And public servants. And to see some cases where it is just, I mean, I can't think of the word at the moment, but just intentional is the word I'm looking for, where it is intentional to frame, not even frames one, but in cases that you see where someone decides who they want and then they work backwards with the evidence. Yeah. Instead of using the evidence to find the person, they find the person and then make the evidence yeah. fit. It's things like that where it's like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, there's so many times where that is seen and it's scary, honestly, because it it is, it is so easy after researching a lot of different things like the West Memphis three and just different cases. There's one out of Mississippi, um, 
Curtis Flowers that is just that district attorney in Mississippi. It 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 is one of the craziest things I've ever seen. The guy's been completely innocent for years. His case has been tried like seven times in court. He was clear. It it is anyways, it's, I don't have time to go into that rage right now, but it seeing cases like that, it is scary and sobering to see how easy it is to be convicted of a crime that you didn't do because someone thinks you did it. And that person has a position of authority. And that is terrifying. Well, and it it starts in elementary school. You know, my my background is in education. Mm -hmm. And I have seen with my own eyes, like I taught kindergarten, Mm -hmm. first grade, second grade. And I would see some I would see kids like set up other kids, slower kids, mm-hmm. not as quick on the uptake kids, set them up for things. It starts mm-hmm. there. It starts and there to I'm, set them up for things. I'm sorry. That's not okay. That is a taught behavior, not a learned one. Oh. I will say you, that you see as it. well. Absolutely. And and it can be taught by a friend, mm-hmm. not necessarily a parent. And then mm-hmm. you have the little groups. And I mean, I've had I've had talks with kids, it's you know. Scary. Yeah, I mean, and I've had talks with with, with kids of we don't do that to friends. We help each other. Mm-hmm. We don't, you know, we don't. That, so scary. You know, that's not okay. It, yeah, and, and, it's and it just, makes me angry. And it does. And it's especially with me having a child, having to navigate these waters of things being said and me having to say, I understand that a friend said that. Let me tell you why that's wrong. Yes. Or let me explain to you. I make it a very careful point because while I don't know, I don't believe I don't see color. I don't believe that standard because I do. Yeah, every you and you celebrate the differences. You celebrate people's differences and you appreciate what you have in common, and that is the basis of things. But what I also try to do with her is she has a friend at school that she will constantly say this this child's name, and I don't. I think. That the child might be Hispanic. Okay. But I don't know. And so I try, I've been trying and I've been trying to figure out for a reason because we had a really bad flood that came through the area recently. I was trying to kind of figure out what area she lived in. I knew what area was heavily affected. It is what it is. There are areas of the town that I live in that mm-hmm. are more mm-hmm. densely Hispanic populated. And I was trying to figure out where she lived, right. trying to figure out how we could help, if we could help, what we could do. like If help was needed. If help was needed. Exactly. Based on those kind of demographics. Without being like, hey. And so in the best I said, I was trying to come up with a very... What's the best way to try and approach this? Because I don't want to say, I don't want to make a differentiator of, is she black? 
That's not what I want to identify someone with. That's not, while yes, that is your culture, that is your heritage, that is beautiful, you, that, that is wonderful. That's not what I want her to imagine and see and go, yes, that is my friend, my friend. You know, like Mm -hmm. I don't, I was trying to be very careful. And so I just said, does she speak Spanish? Mm -hmm. Do you notice, does she speak Spanish? And she said, no, she doesn't speak Spanish. Keep in mind, my child is very into the Hispanic culture. It's very interesting. It's a whole ordeal. She will correct your pronunciation. She will correct if, if you say Encanto, that kid in two seconds will go, it's Encanto, please. Like she will not. <laughs> it is not Mirabelle, it's Mirabelle. She will Mirabelle. correct you in two seconds. She is not playing around with that. She is all about it. But, and she would also ask me questions about like, what does mi corazón mean? And I would explain to her like, that means my heart, kind of like my love. Like that's what mm-hmm. she's calling Mirabelle is she's calling her her love. Like you are my heart, you're my love. So she understands those things. So she knows what that means. And I said, does she speak Spanish? Just mm-hmm. in, because I knew one heavily affected area that was, you know, heavily Hispanic. And she goes, no. And I was like, okay. All right. And like I a disgusted no. Yeah. Like, how dare you? I was like, okay. She looked at me like I was a peasant. All right. <laughs> and so, but it's it's those things where you you have to, as a parent to a young child, you have to think of those things in a way of what is going to be the best way for me to say this or position this or Try and approach something and also not have her categorize her friends or not have her put someone in a box. Like, Mm -hmm. that is my biggest thing because just you want her to be kind to to everyone. Like, I don't care. Like, whatever. Like, I don't care. I, I would. I don't want that. And so it was, and I actually ended up having to ask her teacher and I just said, Hey, my daughter has said that this is one of her friends in class. And I understand that something like occurred. I'm just wondering if they need anything. Like, have you heard anything? Cause we have like an app that we can talk to the mm-hmm. teacher. And I was like, have you heard anything? Do you know of anything? Like we're more than willing to help. I'll make it completely anonymous. I'm fine with that. I just want to make sure mm-hmm. they're okay. Cause my daughter told me, she said, well, they're living in a hotel for now. And so that was when I knew like it was bad. Like yeah, they could not happened. live in their house. Yeah. And so, you know, I wanted to make sure. And I, you know, I said, this is who her friend is. And, and the way that I did it is I said, do you know her last name? Because I thought, we might know someone who might know them. Uh-huh. And she told me her last name and I was like, mm, like, I'm not really sure. And so, you know, I just told the teacher, I was like, hey, if she needs anything, please let us know. Like, I'm more than happy to help. I, I don't mind. I'll make it completely anonymous. It doesn't matter. Like, this is my daughter's friend. I just want to make sure that yeah. her I friend... I want to help if, if we can help. Because... <laughs> God bless Ellie. She was like, 
I mean, our house is big enough. And I went, oh, love. And she goes, the house down is, and this was at a time where, yes, my child, I am not claiming that I have done any of this. All I will say is she has the purest heart. And there was a house down the street that was for sale. And she noticed and she said, oh, I wonder if I should tell Blank's family because maybe they could just move in down the street from us and they could have a house. And I was like, all right. And then this past weekend, I told you my, my mom has horses and one of her horses sadly passed away in the past few weeks. And so we were down there for Mother's Day and they have four stalls and of course one is now empty and Ellie was going around feeding the horses like cookies. They're just like horse treats. Mm -hmm. And she goes over to the empty (gasps) stall. Is it the first time she's been there since that happened? And she went over there. And but she knew, like she knew it wasn't a thing where she didn't know. Right. She just went over there and she was like giving a cookie to an invisible horse and talking to it. And she was like, Here's a cookie for you, Lady Mac. And it was like Oh, my mom was like. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. And she was, but she, (laughs) my mom was like, oh, that's good. She can have a cookie in heaven. And Ellie goes, she's a ghost. (laughs) She's your child. There's my kid. (laughs) There she is. (laughs) So there's that to leave you with your week. Um, (laughs) She's a ghost. She's your kid. Um, like. All of you. You could be right, kid. You don't know. Um, uh, there are no ghost horses on our website, <laughs> but you can go and ghost. find our website. It is one nation under crime.com. We are one nation under crime literally everywhere you can find us. Unless everywhere. you're on Twitter and it's at ONUC pod. Go find us on Patreon. You can hear our Patreon episode this week. Trust me. The reptile dysfunction. It is all you whatever hope for and more. Um, Yes. It is fantastic. Uh, I hope our Patreons enjoyed that this week. It was a little different. We mixed it up from what we typically do. So hopefully that was a nice little little surprise for them (laughs) to kind of get into get into something a little bit different than what we cover on the normal feed. So um, if you want to become a Patreon, one, you should. Two, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash one nation under crime. There are several different tiers to choose from and you can choose your own tier as well. Uh, We appreciate you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of One Nation Under Crime. I will point out it is one, two, three, four a.m. at this point. A. So we got to go. We love you guys. Oh. We appreciate you. We will see you here. Same, probably not this same exact no. time that we're recording this, no. but different crime. Yes. Next week. And remember, there isn't always no. liberty and justice for all. And we this week will leave it simply at that. There you go. Be kind, guys. Goodbye. Bye.